Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Daphna Hacker and talking about her new book, Legalized Families in the Era of Bordered Globalization. Professor, how are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm fine. Yeah, so I just wanted to start out by sort of talking about you and what sort of is your academic background and what specifically led you to write a book about, you know, the concept of legalized families. Well, I have a not a, an unusual career. I have um, first and second degrees in law and then a PhD in sociology. So I'm among the few who can look at the law from a sociological perspective and look uh, at sociology from a legal perspective. And since I think families are the most fascinating things on earth, more than organization and public sphere and politics per se, um, I find myself uh, drawn again and again to studying families. My, uh, my thesis was on single women, my uh, PhD was on divorce and parental arrangement, and, and in recent years, I've realized that focusing only on what's going on in my particular country, which is Israel, or in, on any one country, misses a lot in our understanding, both sociological understanding of the family and understanding how families are affected by the law, uh, because so many families today, today are affected by globalization. So we have, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing we should move to the concept of families' laws, meaning how, for example, immigration law or labor law or international law affects families. Right. And I guess, why did you find that, you know, the intersection of family and globalization was sort of a gendered phenomenon? Well, you know, when, when you're, you're a feminist and when you study gender, you see gender all the time, everywhere. There isn't one phenomena that is not gendered. So, for example, take the phenomena of spouses immigrating to live with the person they love. Um, data shows us that in most cases it is the woman who leaves her house, her family, her community, her country and moves to the country of her spouse. And here you see different kinds of power relations uh, that affect that, that, that future family. For example, I'm talking about prenups and the ability to um, contract future relations. And I'm arguing that I'm against it. I think that uh, when people imagine a family, it's something that it's really hard to imagine when you're young and you don't have children. And more so because of this power imbalance and the ability of the spouse who is a citizen uh, to affect the contract more so than the spouse who is an immigrant. And again, because in most cases it will be the woman, then it is a gendered issue. 
Yeah, and I think that one of the things that I found really fascinating about your book is that it, it seems like we have, and you kind of alluded to this already, a uh, maybe incomplete notion of how exactly globalization has affected the family because of um, how we conceptualize different borders. And you talk about borders in um, different ways. So I was wondering if you could tell the audience sort of what borders are you talking about and why are those borders important for understanding this phenomenon? Well, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was that I was very concerned with the concept of globalization. Um, in the end, end of, the, of the 90s the, and, and, and during uh, the first years of, of the third millennium, everybody were, ta- were talking about globalization. And I think there is a danger in this concept because it makes us imagine our world without borders, as if we can move freely uh, when in fact our era is the era with the highest number of geopolitical borders ever in human history. And if you look at what's happening in the Mediterranean and people willing to, to risk the, their life and, and drowning in, 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 their, in, in thousands um, just because they want to cross it to Europe from, from Africa, from the, from the Middle East, you realize how many more people would have liked to cross the, the border and cannot. And in fact, less than 4% of the globe's citizens do not live in the country in which they were born. So we are in in a very bordered um, reality. So I was interested in the interrelations between global forces and borders. So mainly geopolitical borders, but also borders that are based on economic status, on gender, on citizenship. Um, what we call social boundaries. Yeah, and I think this is kind of a a little bit of an aside, but I think an important and interesting one. Why do you think it is that in the era that we are the most bordered is also the era where this concept of sort of globalization or maybe um, thinking of ourselves as global citizens has sort of been a... Uh, parallel movements or parallel thoughts that happen? That's a great question. And I think the answer is first and foremost, technology. Uh, It's not as if people didn't move in the past. We had, you know, ancient empires that ruled half the world. But today, the intensity of the movement um, of ideas, of messages is such that even if we stay put and we don't move at all, uh, we are born, live and die in the same place, we have the sense of being part of the globe that didn't um, exist in the past because we are aware of what's going on. I'll give an example from the book. Uh, There is a chapter that deals with children's poverty and with the fact that children in the global south, um, many of them suffer from from very bad conditions. um, And it's part of the harsh inequality between the north and the south. So in addition to objective poverty, in which people just don't have enough food, uh, they experience subjective poverty because they know how people in other places in the world live. So, for example, when we talk about child labor, 
Studies show us that children in Africa, for example, are working, among, among other reasons, to buy Nike because, or Coca-Cola because, you know, they are convinced by the media that this, this is the good life. So I think the power of globalization, and again, I'm interested in the ways we understand family. We are exposed to a variety of options in relation to family life that we just weren't exposed to before. So, um, for example, gay marriage is no longer only about whether my country allows it or not, uh, but what is going on in other countries. And may I travel to Canada, for example, to marry the person I love, uh, even though uh, she is from the same sex. So the, the intensity of this, of, of this kind of movement um, makes us, in a sense, all part of this, of this globe, even though it's not really a small village and many of us suffer from the, the harsh inequality that I, I was mentioning before. Yeah, so going back to sort of your focus on the family, and you mentioned earlier how we need a transition from uh, this legal framework of maybe individual countries or, and we'll get into how that might be divvied up later, but um, from family law into this family's law, um, you, you mentioned in the book a process of families becoming legalized. So what is that process? And why should that be included in our sort of new legal framework and how we think about family life? Families were always legalized. The question, who, who am I allowed to marry? Uh, what are the consequences of marriage regarding property? What it is that we owe our children? Do we owe anything to our elder parents? What happens when we divorce? All these questions are legal questions. And it's, it's amazing how people, for example, decide to marry, not asking themselves, what are the legal consequences of this move? Although obviously they are. Take, for example, inheritance law. In many countries, the minute I marry, that means that a part of my estate will go to my spouse. So um, in my family law class, uh, the first uh, exercise my students have to do is to draft a prenup. And that makes them realize that entering into marriage is, is a dramatic legal step, whether you draft a prenup or not. So we are all legalized in our family life, even if we're not aware of it, if, even if we don't want to think about it. Now I'm interested, and this kind of goes into one of my questions that we'll, we'll kind of tackle now, but so what my, the first part of my question is what happens largely in your family law classes when you ask them to write a prenup? Huh, it's very interesting. They are divided into into groups of four. Two of them are the couple that plan to marry and two are the lawyers. Each one has a lawyer. So in the beginning, they ask themselves, you know, the, the, the client and the lawyer, what it is that they think should be in this prenup. Um, for example, in Israel, uh, as in many other countries, we have religious family law in which the husband has the ability to um, prevent a divorce from a wife, uh, while a wife cannot do that, the same thing for, for a man. So it's both in Judaism and in Islam. 
So do we want to try and contract that out, not allowing the men to do that to the woman? Um, but I think what, what, why I'm, I'm, I love this, this exercise so much is that it makes them realize that they don't want the law to be part of their spousal relation, at least not in the beginning. Uh, it ruins romance. Um, it, you know, it enters suspicion. So there's a tension there between our perception of marriage as this romantic moment, uh, a moment in which we trust our spouse and realizing surely in a class on family law, how many disappointments there, there might be and do we want to try and prepare for these disappointments? And many of them, and I don't blame them nor try to convince them otherwise, says, well, you know, when you, when you decide to, to um, establish a family with someone, you're taking a, a huge risk. And in a sense, nothing can prepare you for that. And you just have to realize what it is that you're entering and knowing that, you know, life are full of, of surprises. So it's also an exercise about the limits of the law. Right. And you had mentioned earlier in our conversation that you argue that prenups are sort of a an overall sort of a bad idea. Um, so do you want to highlight, you know, sort of your, how did you like arrive at that argument? And then why do you think that, and this kind of brings up another question in my head. So why do you think we compartmentalize how the law affects family life like that? I feel like people sort of separate prenup as like almost a, an additive to how we uh, normally see how family law works. So why do you think that is? Well, let me start by, um, by giving an example about how important empirical knowledge is. And, and in the book, I'm trying to use both my, sociolo my sociological skills and my legal skills. Um, so for example, there are studies that show that people are suffering from what is called the honeymoon bias when they are entering a prenup. In the sense that you ask them, how, what is the rate of divorce in the US? They would say 50%. What is the risk of you being divorced? They said 10%. So they are not really taking seriously the option of divorce. So, so what this prenup is all about. Uh, moreover, you, you wouldn't want people to decide on the best interest of their children who are not born yet. And going back to globalization, what about relocation? What if some someone gets an offer in, in another country, a job opportunity. Can you really imagine that? Can you really prepare for that? Can you really contract not to travel? Um, again, what, I, what I'm saying is that we are entering this, this venture together, if we do, and we just have to realize it's a risk and we'll have to make our way as, as we go. In addition to the family being sort of this legal category, you also highlight how it's not only a social practice, but also sort of this interactional accomplishment. Um, so why is it important that we understand the family in this sort of multidimensional way, uh, given sort of the, the heightened uh, rise of globalization? 
I think one of the things that this book um, made me face is my normal attitude towards family. And I, I admit in the book that I think families are important. And that I do not want to imagine a world in which we, we are just individuals and we live for ourselves and we don't have this kind of relationship. Having said that, um, the book also demonstrates how differently families are perceived in different parts of the world. So, for example, in, in some societies in Africa, you don't have a word, a word for, for parental love. And parental love is first and foremost about um, supplying material needs and not emotional ones. In some countries, spouses don't live together under the same roof. Um, in others, uh, as we know, very high divorce rates and high rates of singlehood and people, you know, saying this, I don't believe in the marriage institute. So, and, and, and many people choosing not to have children or, or just not having them. So it's at the same time mapping this huge variety of of the way people practice family. And we have to understand it. For example, going back to the law, do we want many international conventions on the family? For example, on uh, surrogacy, which is one of the issues that I'm dealing with in the book. There is no international convention on surrogacy. And the reason there isn't is because different countries treat surrogacy very differently. France, for example, thinks it's human trafficking. Um, Israel thinks that it should be allowed legally. In the States, it's, um, it's a private and a market thing. So as, as a global community, we have to, to think, do we want a shared normative umbrella over families? And to realize that because families are so important to culture, to religion, to communities, we have to accept that different, different religions, different communities treat family differently. But again, it's, it, there are dilemmas. For example, what do we do with polygamy? So again, in the era of globalization, people want to move with their family. And not even one country in, in the West allows a Muslim man to bring more than one wife from his home country. That means that in many cases, there is another or two or three women uh, left behind. Um, another example in, in Singapore, for example, more than a third of Singaporean men bring brides from other Asian countries. Should the government allow it? Is it a social problem? Um, so these are the questions I'm interested in. And I end the book with, with calling everybody, you know, students, researchers, policymakers, judges, um, to shape their own familial vision. And, and it cannot and should not be the same, but at least we will know, each one of us, what it is that we think family, a family is. And um, is it important? And if it is important, how we how do we make sure that we allow families to thrive? Yeah, and I I think that one of the things that was particularly interesting in sort of how does 
different uh, visions of family life sort of collide in the legal world was your discussion on how religious law and secular law sort of uh, collide in this way. And you talk about that sort of about a hundred pages into your book. So uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, some examples of how uh, different legal frameworks have had different sort of accommodation policies for religious law and, you know, how does that affect family life and, and people moving around in a globalized society? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a challenge. Um, again, as I mentioned, I'm coming from a country in which we have religious family law as part of state law. But what happens now is that in, in other countries which define themselves as secular countries with civil family law, they find themselves with growing communities um, of, of other religions. Um, and these communities, for example, may ask for some kind of autonomy over family life. So we have an example of uh, Muslim communities in Canada, in, in the UK, asking for autonomy over family mediation. And I'm, I'm detailing in the book how these two countries um, gave very different answers to the question whether uh, Muslims are allowed to dissolve marriage through religious mediation. So in the UK, the answer was yes, although many oppose this option, again, because uh, it, it might put women at risk uh, because these are this is a patriarchal religion, just like Judaism is. Um, in, in Canada, they, the, the, the parliament voted um, against this option, closing the option of religious family-based um, mediation, and by doing that, uh, preventing the Jewish community from doing religious mediation over family matters, which that community has done for centuries. So it's really interesting how new waves of immigration are affecting national law um, and again, in the name of, of, of gender equality, preventing religious communities from governing their families, um, marriages, divorces, etc. Um, another example is, is underage marriage. What is the right age for marriage? In some religions, it can be very, very young. So the law says no. So does that end the phenomena or does it go underground? What assistant the country actually give this, these young women if they want to escape forced marriage. Um, all these are relatively new challenges that many countries in the global north have, have to um, tackle now because of immigration. Yeah, and speaking of immigration, uh, that's certainly sort of a hot topic currently in sort of the overall zeitgeist, but also um, a big topic in your book. And so one of my questions is, what are, what do you define as familial citizenship? So that's something that you talk about. And what are the implications for that um, for sort of current immigration policies ac across the globe? Um, and how is that also um, sort of a, a gendered phenomenon? I'm asking, uh, do we have a right for familial citizenship? Meaning, 
the right of family members to live in the same country as citizens. And I'm showing that allegedly the answer is yes, because, for example, in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, it says that a child shouldn't be separated from his or her parents um, unless very, you know, unpreventable circumstances. Um, but in action, I, 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 I demonstrate how the rates of familial visas, you know, um, be, spousal visas or parental visas are, are diminishing as more and more countries do not want families <clears throat> to be re, uh, united or reunited, preferring, for example, uh, unaccompanied laborers that just come to work uh, without their family and are not allowed to bring family members. And what I'm showing is that there is there isn't any consistency in court decisions uh, related to this question. For, so, for example, there's a, a famous case in which the European Court forced Switzerland to allow a person to stay in Switzerland, although he entered the EU under false identity, um, trade cocaine, uh, escaped custody, etc., just because he had two young girls born in Switzerland to a Swiss uh, mother. And even though these young girls didn't really enjoy their father because most of their childhood, he was in jail. On the other hand, in the, in the United States, <coughs> sorry, uh, parents are deported <coughs> even though they have uh, U.S. children in the U.S., uh, because the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that grants citizenship upon birth. So you have this anomaly in which there is a child, he or she are a U.S. citizen, and still they are at risk of being deported with their parent or separated from their parent. So I'm arguing that we should have a right for familial citizenship. We should have a right to live with our family um, in the same country. Again, like any other legal right, it's not an absolute right. So, for example, if citizenship is a scarce resource, which it is, and we have asylum seekers, so maybe we should allow more asylum seekers in and not allow citizens to import spouses they um, encounter, countered on the internet, for example. So I'm not saying there isn't an option of a hierarchy which will um, make asylum seekers' uh, citizenship more urgent, but to treat citizenship as if it, it is only an individual right with no, um, no relation to family life is, is a mistake. And, and again, people immigrate for their families. If we want to understand immigration, we have to understand families. Right. And I think, you know, especially in the U.S. context, the the thing that sort of arises from, OK, then why do we have it that you have a child that is a U.S. citizen and their family gets deported is because we are sort of conceptualizing uh, families in our sort of multicultural society in this hierarchy, like certain family or certain family structures are valued over others. And that's sort of, I think, one of the astute points you're making is that that sort of creates this 
uh, messy uh, legal uh, reaction, right? But even even if we are just focusing on the nuclear family, uh, one of the tables that I'm I'm offering in in the book compares the discourse on parental divorce in the global north and parental immigration for remittances in the global south. So when we're talking about what children need when their parents divorce in the north, we are preoccupied with making sure that the contact with both parents is maintained. We even enforce joint physical custody. We prevent a parent from relocation. We we keep asking what, what serves the, the child's be- best interest. We allow children to be heard in legal procedures, etc. When it comes to parents leaving their children behind to work in uh, uh, another country, we, we, we tell ourselves, oh, it's not so bad because the parent sends money home. And what I'm showing ba- based on, on, on the evidence we have, and again, it's not enough evidence, is that sometimes the parent doesn't have money to send back because she or he are detained or they have to spend the money they earn on, on, on living in this, in this new country. Um, sometimes the, the money is sent, for example, to the grandmother and the grandmother has you know, other kids and other grandchildren. There is no guarantee that that particular grandchild will, will get the money. Uh, we have stories that a big funeral for the grandfather was, was, was prepared by, by the money sent home. So we, we are not sure that these, these children are, are economically better for the long run. And in many cases, the emotional harm is really severe. And these children suffer from neglect and missing their parents um, and again, for, for example, in the Philippines, which is the country that encourages its citizens to live and, and work abroad because it's so poor, the average uh, um, years a mother doesn't see her children is, is more than seven years. Um, fathers don't see their kids for nine years and more. So these are children that are, are being, that are grown up without their parents. So how can we tell ourselves that parents in the North are crucial for the children? Children have to be in constant contact with both their parents. And when it comes to children in the global South, we tell ourselves that it's okay, that their parents have to leave to make a living to survive. So I think that a reality in which parents have to leave their children behind is a global failure. And we all have to be concerned with this million of children in the Philippines, nine million children live with at least uh, one of their parents abroad. I think we should be all concerned. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's certainly a good point to bring up uh, and a concern that I think is is very valid one. Uh, you had mentioned this earlier, not to you know, take a drastic left turn from that conversation. But you mentioned sort of the role uh, that globalization has on one aspect of the family that we haven't really touched on in detail, which is reproduction. So you you use two case studies in the book in particular, and I was hoping that you could unpack sort of the two case studies that you use. And why did you use those specific examples to talk about reproduction and globalization? Well, the first um, case study 
is about Irish women who are forced to travel to England to have an abortion. And I chose this, this particular case because it's not about the global south. It's only about the global north. And yet 4,000 women are forced each year to travel to another country to give an abortion. And I think this is, is horrible. And again, I, I give examples of, of women who couldn't afford a night um, in the hospital and were traveling back to Ireland in, in, in the train and bleeding. And really, um, I, I have no words to express um, how horrible I think that is. So again, it's the interplay between globalization and borders. On the one hand, Ireland says, we will not prevent our citizens for traveling to have an abortion. We don't like it, but we will not prohibit it. And on the other hand, the border is there. The, the, the geopolitical border, the economic border, of course, the gender border. Um, the other example is about um, uh, transnational surrogacy, in particular, Israelis traveling to India to use uh, Indian women as surrogates. It's a fascinating case study because we don't, as I said, we don't have an international convention on surrogacy, so it's all up to the national laws involved. And in Israel, the law of Israel only deals with local surrogacy. So the interpretation is, is that if something is not prohibited by the law, then it's allowed. So Israel, again, like Ireland, allows its citizens to do illegal things in other countries and come back. Uh, so in Ireland, it's abortion. And in Israel, it's, for example, surrogacy for same-sex couples, which is not allowed in Israel with Israeli surrogates, but is allowed abroad. Another thing that is interesting about this case study, which is still to be studied, is that, studied, is that in 2015, India closed its gate to, in, to transnational surrogacy, although it was making millions out of this global industry. So something put an end to hyper-capitalist uh, reproduction industry. And it's interesting to study whether it's national pride or concern, all of a sudden a concern of poor segregates in India or something else. Yeah, and I, I thought those two case studies in particular really highlight uh, sort of different ways that globalization affects family life you know, outside of what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, the family setup itself, but sort of a, a very important aspect of the family for some families is this sort of reproductive aspect. So I thought those two case studies were really uh, crucial to understanding your overall argument. Um, and it, Absolutely. And I think I'm also in another chapter, I'm talking about transnational adoption, inter-country adoption. And again, I think the stories are, are really fascinating because there was a, you know, a few years with this um, huge amount of number of, of international adoption. Is, is this the solution to child poverty? And then a sharp drop. And I think, again, the, the story about the relations between the U.S. and Russia on that issue is really amazing because... Putin was insulted by a law 
uh, U.S. Congress passed on um, corrupted officials and overnight decided to, to, to not to enable, no longer to enable uh, U.S. citizens to adopt Russian children, even if that means that these children are left in horrible institutions. So again, you know, there, it's it's you know it, it's the potential of globalization. We might be able to find homes to these children in other countries, but national politics, very narrow national politics, prevent these children from finding a suitable home. Right, and you know, another aspect of uh, sort of family life that you talk about uh, in terms of how globalization impacts it is familial violence. So what, what is that impact? And then, you know, I feel like this is sort of an obvious question, but sort of why is this a, a gendered phenomenon? Well, it is an obvious question. Um, in most cases of spousal violence, it is the man who um, is violent towards the woman. Uh, when it comes to violence towards children, it's more complex. And it's also mothers who are violent toward the children, again, in, in, in different ways and under different circumstances, but um, it, is, it is the reality. So this, this chapter looks, at, again, at a variety of, of, of things. Um, for example, should we expand asylum-seeking visas to women who are abused by their husbands in their home country? So... Interestingly, uh, the Convention on Torture um, does not relate to domestic violence. Um, and there isn't a, a clear-cut international law that says, yes, if you are at risk of being, for example, murdered by your spouse or, 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 or terribly bitten, then you should be allowed to run away to another country and that country is forced to give you asylum. Uh, but, for example, some courts in the U.S. Uh, allow it on, and under very creative interpretation of the law and saves uh, and save women from, from South America. So I think this is an example of, of, of ways in which the law, through global movement, can save women from very harsh reality in their home countries. And, and again, you have to prove that your home country doesn't do anything to, to save you. And in that case, you, you might um, seek asylum in another country. And I think that's, that's good. It's not enough, of course, and it's not an answer for, for the millions of women who are abused, but it's better than nothing. Uh, but I move to other questions. For example, um, comparing uh, female genital mutilation to male circumcision. We just heard this week that Iceland uh, issued a new law that prohibits male circumcision. Uh, is it the same as female circumcision? Um, can it be compared? Again, I'm, I'm offering an answer, but it's my answer. I think it's not the same. Um, and then I do something that some might think is, is almost provocative. I add to the picture uh, a very U.S. phenomena of child pegging. Beauty child pegging competition. Yeah, that was that was going to be uh, my next question. So I'm glad I'm glad you got there. <laughs> Uh, and, and it was important for me because I was, I was astonished to learn that I, I at least found only two academic articles talking about the legal aspects of this phenomenon. 
And it's global in the sense that it started in the U.S., but many, many countries are copying it. And we have these competitions on, all over the world. And I'm asking, is, is this not child abuse? If you take a, a four-month baby, a two-year-old ba- child, and again, it's very, very gendered, obviously. And, 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 and for hours, you're subjecting her, subjecting her to, you know, everything, dresses and hair and eyelashes and ugh, and surgeries in some cases, honestly. And I, I give this example just to, to warn us that of, of this patronizing Western gaze that so very easily judge um, cultures and customs and family practices of others with no reflection of what's going on in our own society. And I think that these beauty contests for children have no cultural value, are not based in any religion, in any tradition, um, only make cause harm. And, and you know, we're... we're, we're we're heading towards the, the International Women's Day, and we are in the midst of, of the Me Too campaign. And all these competitions are, are, are objectifying young, young girls, babies even, and we don't do anything about it. So when we're talking about family practices, it's not only looking at other societies and saying, oh, these societies are so violent, and families there, they don't know, know how to behave. But looking inside and asking what it is that we're doing and what kind of familial culture we are exporting to other countries. No, and I think that is a very sort of astute point, and I and that's why I wanted to ask about it because I think there is this um, sort of uh, gut uh, reaction or sort of inclination to have you know have that sort of Western gaze upon other. Uh, family structures. And I think that the child beauty pageants, you know, I'm just thinking anecdotally, but I imagine that if you ask most people in the United States, do you consider this child abuse? There would at least be a majority, maybe not that much higher than 50%, but would probably say, no, it's not child abuse, right? So it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's a great example that you bring up in the book. Um, And then one other aspect of family life that I also think doesn't get talked about at least as much in other places in the world in the U.S. is old age. So how is what happens to as family members age a sort of border gendered uh, legal phenomenon? I thank you for this question, but because I, I, the last chapter of the book, which is about old age, is very important for me. Uh, although it's only a beginning, you know, an invitation for, for discussion and further studies because we, so, we know so little about it. Because what I'm arguing is that both in the sociology of, of, of the family and in family law, we treat families as if family relations end when the kids reach the age of 18. When in fact, most of our lives, we are part of a family as grown-ups. We parent grown-ups and we are ch- grown-up children of parents. And this is a neglected area of research and of uh, normative discussions. So I'm, I'm, I'm ending the book with this chapter to highlight 
the importance of discussing family relations uh, at old age and the importance of discussing old age in general, because we are experiencing, uh, again, in, for the first time in human history, um, an increasing rate of elder people uh, with decreasing rates of childbirth. So, so this is becoming an acute problem of how are we going to sustain ourselves um, with fewer children um, in the economy and people living longer and longer. And I, I chose one aspect of globalization. There are, there are many others in which more and more countries are adopting the solution of importing care for elders. Um, so Israel, for example, we have um, the state allows us to bring um, a caregiver from abroad. And she is expected to live in the house of the elder person 24-7. Um, she's not allowed to bring family members. If she gives birth, the baby is expected to return to the home country, even without the mother. So again, it's stripping these caregivers from their familial subjectivity in order to care for our elder parents. And this solution... Um, is also um, apparent in Italy and in other countries. Because, again, Western countries don't have a good answer to the question, who is going to take care of elder people? And we want to keep them at home. We don't want to institutionalize them. Um, institutions are expensive, etc. So I'm asking, what are the prices of this solution? Um, and what happens to family relations with the elder person? I think um, it's, again, it's an invitation for discussion because there's so much more to be said and, and, and studied. Yeah, and, you know, that chapter in particular made me think about sort of my own experience, at, own experience as a relative young person in the United States and how many people in my generation sort of think of Social Security, one of our sort of staple safety nets when you reach old age as something that probably won't be around when we are old, right? And so, so that's sort of like a another legal uh, framework that we're looking through where, you know, we might see another era of uh, a large amount of elderly people unable to care for themselves because of sort of legal consequences and policy changes, right? Right. And, and for example, when you when uh, someone objects immigration, we have to understand that in many cases, and I think that what, ha what happens in Germany, and this is something Merkel understands, without immigration and with such low rate of childbirth, there, there will be no one to care for the elders. Um, and if you prevent visas for, for labor, uh, then again, one one group that will suffer and is suffering are the elders. Uh, so it's part of the story, and we all have to talk about it. And it's it's not discussed enough. No, I would I would agree. And you know, if I'm being completely honest, when I was reading your book, when I got to that chapter, I was sort of surprised that I had not thought of it either. I was like, oh yeah, this is this is a huge part of family life that. You know, even reading a book on, you know, the legalized families in a global society, I didn't really 
I hadn't primed in my head like that, that would be talked about. So I think that is certainly a neglected area of this whole phenomenon. Um, and I know I'm taking a lot of your time and this is sort of, you know, it might be a difficult question to answer because of how, uh, comprehensive and also, you know, comprehensive that your book is and also how much it paints sort of a complicated picture of family's law. But if there's one takeaway that you would want readers to get from your book, what would that one sort of main point be? That families are important. Uh, I think both in sociology and in law, the area of family is in the periphery. Uh, there are, for example, law schools in the U.S. that don't even give courses on family law, let alone by a faculty member. Um, in sociology, um, areas such as the sociology of organization, the sociology of the market are much more prestigious than the sociology of the family. So my main message in this book is that for most of us, most of the time, our family is the most important thing. Um, so both in law and in sociology, we have to realize that and give this, this sphere of life much more attention. No, I, I, I agree. And I think that would be an excellent takeaway for people reading this book. And speaking of people reading this book, uh, if people pick your book up, which I encourage them to do, and they're really sort of taken by this topic area, are there any other book recommendations that you could give our listeners? Well, I think one of the things that I was aiming uh, through this book is to provide this very long list of bibliography for others to follow. And the, the sources I'm relying on are not only mentioned in footnotes, but there is additional um, index uh, in, in, at the end of the book with all the references, and then again, index by name and by subject. I did all that I can to make this book not only about my text, but about the, the resource that I relied on. In particular, there is a book from 2010 titled Globalization and Families by uh, Behira Sharif Tras, which I think is the only book dedicated to families and globalization. It's a sociological book. And there is a book, an, an edited collection called Gendering Border Studies, um, which looks at this new field of border studies through the gender lens, and I highly recommend it. Well, I did notice that you provided that comprehensive list at the end, and I think that is really useful. And I wish you know more people in academia would would do that. Um, but again, I want to thank you for joining us, and I encourage our listeners to go and buy Legalized Families in the Era of Bordered Globalization. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate your effort. <laughs>